Hello, I'm Paul Evans and welcome to Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity that provides information and support for those of us living with pain. This edition is financed by Grunenthal. If you have cancer, cystic fibrosis, multiple sclerosis, motor neuron disease, you are diagnosed by the physician. Chronic pain is the only one where you go into your physician, your GP or your consultant and say, I have chronic pain, can you help me? In May 2012, over 400 delegates representing 35 European countries met in Copenhagen at the third Societal Impact of Pain Conference. It was organised by EFIC, that's the European Federation for the International Association for the Study of Pain Chapters. Now, chronic pain accounts for 500 million lost working days in the EU every year, and that costs the economy over 34 billion euros. Janet Graves covered the event for Pain Concern, and she started by speaking with Professor Hans Kress from Vienna. He's president of EFIC. In the minds of many people, of politicians in particular, pain is just a symptom, a symptom of another disease. And they have the misconception that also chronic pain is just a symptom of another chronic disease that must be treated, and when it's treated, it's fine and the chronic pain disappears. We know from our many, many chronic pain sufferers that that is not the case. It may develop to a disease in its own right, and that, therefore, we have already years ago, in 2001, proclaimed and stated that chronic pain in many cases must be considered a disease. Unfortunately, chronic pain does not exist in the classical systems that are used around the world for coding of diseases, for also reimbursement purposes and so on. And one typical example is the so-called ICD, that is the International Classification of Diseases. It's published and developed by the WHO in Geneva. And there you will not find the diagnosis chronic disease. And what cannot be found is not diagnosed and does also not appear in our official statistics. And what is not in the official statistics doesn't play a role for political decisions. So one step is the result of another. And what we must reach, and we are discussing that during our symposium, that at least in the ICD-11, that is the new version that is in the pipeline of WHO, some category of chronic pain appears. Professor Hans Kress, president of EFIC. Now, Dr Beverly Collett is a consultant in pain medicine and she's chair of the Chronic Pain Policy Coalition in the UK. The Department of Health have said that they would find it conceptually easier to prioritise pain if chronic pain was called a disease in its own right. But pain is very complex and it's also a continuum. And so you have acute pain after an operation or an accident and that's obviously due to tissue damage, and that is not a disease in its own right. Somebody, for example, who has an osteoarthritic hip, 
they have that hip replaced and the pain goes. So the pain for them was not a disease in its own right. So whilst I think conceptually, we know that in some patients you get central sensitization and you get changes going on in the spinal cord that are common to many different causes of pain. I think it's a route that needs to be taken with caution because otherwise you may get doctors not looking for ways to totally change pain but actually um, just looking for ways to manage pain only. And so I, th I think it's something that needs to be viewed with caution. And I think also you need to remember that as pain specialists in England, we manage acute pain, we manage cancer pain, and we manage non-cancer pain. And I think dividing it up is actually going to, to make things really quite much more difficult for us to, um, us to manage. So I think we need to view that with looking at the patient as an individual and really managing the individual patient in front of us in the best possible way. And I think that is, is um, how we will manage patients with pain to the best of our ability. Dr Beverly Collett, Chair of the Chronic Pain Policy Coalition in the UK. So what's the picture across Europe? Can patients expect the same level of treatment in whatever country they may be? John Lindsay is Vice President of Pain Alliance Europe. It's a relatively new umbrella organisation representing patients and patient advocacy groups. They're not vastly different. If you take the country we're, currently, we're in at present, which is Denmark, everybody would say that generally the health services in Denmark are superb, but I've just heard a representative of a Danish organisation who support people with chronic pain, saying that they have the same issues and problems in Denmark as they do all around Europe. And it would appear to be the same everywhere. Some countries may be slightly more advanced, such as Norway, Portugal, Scotland, Wales. Ireland is doing reasonably well. Germany is doing reasonably well. But still, on the whole, with 20% of people in Europe living with chronic pain, access to services is very, very limited. And correct diagnosis can be a huge issue, which can lead in return to an incorrect referral so that one ends up going around the house before they eventually get to the pain consultant. And waiting times vary considerably. I know, I think in Denmark, they've managed to get it down to nine weeks to see a pain consultant. In the west of Ireland, it's three years to see a pain consultant and you're just left in pain for three years which is horrendous uh, but generally the, nobody has ever looked and said what is best practice uh, all around Europe where can we identify best practice who is giving those living with chronic pain the best care and management and it is part of the work we will do within Pain Alliance Europe we will ask all the national organisations to try and make even initially a rough assessment of what services are available and then compare them uh, I know recently I was in Northern Ireland and their services are quite good, although they themselves would not think they're good. Uh, but they would have access to multidisciplinary teams, which is absolutely essential. John Lindsay, Vice President of Pain Alliance Europe. Now, Justino Marassi manages a public company providing healthcare services for a population of around 350,000 in central Italy. 
unfortunately, progress cannot be the same all around Europe for many different reasons. Basically, it depends on the background in the different regions of Europe, and uh, also uh, it depends on the charisma of the people working in that specific uh, area. The influence we can have from the central action to the local action is extremely important, of course, but is not uh, everything. We can give guidelines like the one we tried to give with the roadmap for action, but at the same time we can uh, not uh, influence at the local level because the local level is uh, done by, especially for healthcare services, is done via the organization of patients and especially of politicians. But again, it depends also from the influence of the local people. For example, I think uh, the action that has been made in Italy is uh, really important because we have succeeded with the, at the political level, obtaining many different uh, uh, advantages for uh, the pain patients. And uh, of course, maybe the organization of the healthcare is also influenced by the local ability of the different doctors, also in the same country. And uh, this is, uh, of course, uh, the same for uh, all the countries in Europe. And I think uh, in some countries there are spots where the pain patients are treated better. In some others are spots where pain patients are not cared at all. But what we obtained for sure in the last uh, few years is uh, that at least the politicians have started to discuss about pain patients. Now they are more sensitive. The pain is in the agenda of many politicians and this is very important because this is the beginning of the change we can have. The map of progress in Europe is indeed very patchy and I'm afraid to say that the UK is not doing well at all. Anne Lloyd's a trustee of the Patients' Association in the UK. That is not to say there isn't really excellent work going on in the UK. We do research into who's making the best progress in the Patients' Association on these areas. And there has been some really excellent work done in Sheffield, done in NHS Easton, done in Kirklees and under Kent Coast. And again, this is an issue of why is not everybody adopting this good practice? Opening up the care pathway and working with uh, local government colleagues uh, to ensure that the services are working more seamlessly together and haven't we been talking about that for years and to ensure that the commissioners can uh, have the evidence on which to start to commission a totally different type of pain programme for which they will then pay, rather than the traditional surgical intervention. That is still necessary in a small proportion of patients, but, but certainly not in 90% of the people who refer for back pain and other things. Anne Lloyd of the Patients' Association. One of the areas she singled out for praise was Kirklees in West Yorkshire. Now, Judith Hooper is the Director of Public Health for NHS Kirklees and Kirklees Council. 
West Yorkshire is a legacy of obviously mill working, so there's a lot of low skill, low paid jobs. Some of it was very badly hit by the 80s recession, and it is a very much a land of small businesses. So income levels are relatively low, education relatively low. It's also got a very high uh, proportion of people from the South Asian subcontinent, particularly Pakistan, where the understanding of pain is significantly different to the indigenous population. There's a lot of deprivation of people on low income, people with low use of resources. And one of the things we've tried to do is get people to understand what they can do to help themselves, encourage things like expert patient program, get the right tools, CDs, DVDs in the local libraries, get the librarians trained up to know how to guide people to the right things for whatever they're, they're coming for, as well as get information out to people. So they don't, they're not dependent on their GP or they're not dependent on the system to actually point them in the right direction. So we're, we're working with social care workers, we're with, working with housing officers and we're even working with dustmen in terms of when they have conversations with the people that they come into interaction with to just give them some ideas about things that they can do even if it's just becoming more physically active like going for longer walks. So it's very much about working with particularly on the front line to get them to think differently and get them to be able to point patients in the right direction when they come across them. So, for example, in Kirklees, we've got a website which is called Kirklees Self-Care. So if people just Google that, that will bring up a whole load of resources and opportunities, not just for people who live in Kirklees, but other people can access elsewhere on the Internet or even buy stuff through Amazon. So it's kind of a, a quality-assured resource inventory of stuff that you can do to help yourself. Dr Judith Hooper. Patients in England will see changes as a result of the controversial Health and Social Care Bill of 2012. Now, you may not find many people these days who will use the words exciting and economic struggle in the same context, but... One of the exciting things about the economic struggle that we're all in is there is no more money. There's a lot of money in the, already in the system. So actually, how do we make best use of this? One of the things that's actually I've managed to get over to both social workers and local clinicians is you don't have to do everything. Just get your your signposting systems in your clinics or in when you're seeing your clients sorted out so you can actually point the clients in the right direction. But it's actually trying to get the system to think about the person in the context that they're living, that it isn't just somebody coming in with their pain in the in their knee. But actually, what's the impact of that pain on how they're coping with their work, how they're coping with their relationships within their family, how they get out of bed in the morning, and all of those basic things in terms of living. As a result of the Health and Social Care Bill, the NHS reforms are actually in three ways. One is around increasing the variety of providers of health care subject to strict regulation. Another one is putting GPs in charge of commissioning instead of primary care trusts. And the third thing is that my world, which is public health, is moving to local government, where it should have been years ago. Now, what that's doing is, in the short term, it's pretty chaotic as this change goes through. But after about next spring, when things will start settling down, I think we've got a real opportunity here. Because GPs, who actually understand that pain is actually probably the biggest thing, alongside mental distress, that they deal with 
and they're not very good at doing it, and they know that. So if there's things that they can see that will help improve pain management, whether the patients are doing it or there's different ways the healthcare system can do it, I think they'll be really interested in it because it will also save them a lot of money, both on prescribing and hospital, both admission and use. And that's one of the things we've been doing in Kirklees and why we've sold it to the GP commissioners in terms of putting in this what's called a step two service. I think the other bit that's really exciting and really is positive is that the NHS reforms are bringing local government, either local councillors, together with the GPs in this thing called a health and wellbeing board, which is overseeing both the commissioning of social care and health care together with public health services. And the advantage of that is that my dealings, I brought in councillors ages ago to look at what was happening in pain management to give it some clout. And the councillors are fantastic because they're in touch with their constituents. They know what's going on in their own surgeries. So they've been really helpful in terms of saying to the clinicians, hey, why aren't you doing this? Why haven't you thought of the patient in this way? And I'm hoping that in the dialogue between councillors and GPs, we've got two sets of people who deal with the public in quite different ways that actually can gel and work really well together. And in Kirklees, they already do, so that feels really, really positive. I think the way in which she described how she went about engaging with local authorities and other stakeholders, charities, etc., and their expert patients in trying to change the commissioning framework was most encouraging. But in Germany, it seems that they are really, really trying to push the societal costs uh, argument uh, to ensure that their governments start to change the way in which they commission. And they've had remarkable results about the huge amount of money that they have saved in their pilots from treating people completely differently, enabling self-care to take place, and getting really, really good uh, patient and, and carer satisfaction results, so improved quality of life. That has been very, very encouraging. Anne Lloyd of the Patients Association. Now, improved quality of life of the elderly is one of the bullet points for this conference on the societal impact of pain in Copenhagen. Dr Chris Wells is president-elect of conference organisers, EFIC. At the moment, 15% of the population of Europe are over 65. By 2020, that'll be over 20%. And by 2030, it'll be over 25%. So over a quarter of us will be over 65. And the problem is that we know from this survey and from other surveys that between 20% and 50% of people over 65 have chronic pain. So it's a major impact on their quality of life. Some of them have mild pain, which they can manage usually very well. Uh, but the most common pain is moderate pain, and a very significant number have severe pain. The cost is in quality of life because, of course, most people over 65 aren't working. But with the ageing population, of course, it is envisaged that people over 65, some of them are going to have to work because we can't afford to pay the pensions of everybody over 65 with our longer life expectancy. So I think, yes, in the future, people will have to work on longer. So there's an economic impact to being over 65 and having pain. But most important is the quality of life. After years and years of working hard, bringing up a family, earning a living, and then you get some peace and quiet in retirement and it's blighted because you've got chronic pain. Most people over 65 have more than one chronic illness, high blood pressure, depression, as well as pain. 
and that makes the treatment of pain even more difficult because some of the treatments that we want to use, some of the drugs we want to use, we can't use because of the other conditions. The problem being that the multimorbidity prevents adequate treatment because there aren't special systems set up to deal with people like that. Most healthcare systems only deal with one problem. Pain clinics are used to dealing with people with multimorbidity, with elderly patients with pain, with all of the problems. And what we need is more access to qualified doctors and staff, nurses, psychologists who know how to manage chronic pain in the elderly. Dr Chris Wells, President-elect of EFIC. Here's John Lindsay of Pain Alliance Europe once again. One of the things about chronic pain, when I think of it, it's the only condition that I'm aware of where you, the patient, tell your medical consultant that you have this condition. You're diagnosed with all other conditions. If you have cancer, cystic fibrosis, multiple sclerosis, motor neuron disease, you are diagnosed by the physician. Chronic pain is the only one where you go into your physician, your GP or your consultant, and say, I have chronic pain. Can you help me? There are no diagnostic tools. So the medical professional just have to accept that what the patient is saying is 100% correct. Speaking to a consultant last night who specialises in the treatment and management of pain, he said in 20 years treating people with chronic pain, he has come across two people who, if you like, were con artists who pulled the wool over his eyes. He said, that's all. Because people in pain are not going to wait six months for an appointment, are not going to go to pain management programmes, are not going to go to pain management clinics, are not going to attend workshops and self-management techniques. So generally, if a person comes in and says, I have severe chronic pain, they have chronic pain and have to be believed. I'm Lisa McKinnon. I come from Finland. I got slip disc in 98. Uh, I was just doing my thesis at the Plymouth University and I didn't understand the problem was so serious. And I didn't go to see the doctor in England um, because I couldn't tell or say the names of the medicines which I'm allergic to. So I went to see the doctor in Finland, and on that part I I was using my old painkillers, which uh, affect my stomach. And the doctor in Finland just uh, tried to heal my stomach. And he didn't believe me when I said that there's a problem at my back, that something is wrong. And finally, he gave me a paper to hospital. And on that paper, he write up that a little bit angry young woman wants to have to refer yeah. to consultant. I got problems at the hospital again because the doctor didn't believe that the pain is as it is. Doctor just said that the pain can't be as bad as I said it is. Finally, when they operate, or actually they take magnet pictures, they found out there's a massive collapse between the vertebrae, and they operated. But the damage has already happened, and I lost some nerves from my leg and also some muscles from my leg. I think one of the biggest issues facing all of people with chronic pain is not being believed. Not being believed by your physician is very disappointing. Not being believed by your spouse, your partner, your loved one, your family, your friends is really devastating. Leads to isolation, loneliness, 
And I know that very recently there's a survey carried out in Australia where they have concluded that possibly as high as 21% of all suicides have a pain element related to them, that the person can no longer live with the pain. So it is a, it, the whole area of not being believed, the isolation, the loneliness, family not believing is a really serious issue that needs to be dealt with. I have lived with the pain now 14 years and uh, I would say I have lost everything. I used to work hard and now I don't have any possibilities to work. I graduate from university but there's no use for my education. I can't have children, so I can't have family. I lost my incomes because I can't work. But I'm lucky one. I haven't lost even one friend during these years. Yeah, but still they are good friends. Lisa Mickinen of the Finnish Pain Association. Now, the issue of employment is one that was addressed by Stephen Bevan at the Societal Impact of Pain conference. He's Director of Workforce Effectiveness at the Work Foundation. It's a research and policy organisation based in London, and one of their projects, Fit for Work, looks at how musculoskeletal pain affects the health of the European workforce. Chronic low back pain is one of the biggest causes of sickness absence from work. It has a massive economic impact, about £12 billion a year uh, in terms of the, the wider European economy. And it can also affect people's psychological well-being, their mental health. Um, and it's one of those areas where physical and psychological health combine together. And so chronic pain associated with things like fatigue have a big impact, not just on sickness absence from work, but the speed with which people return to work. We've seen from some uh, pan-European surveys recently, for example, that the proportion of European workers who report that they're in jobs that require repetitive movements or difficult postures um, are, after a long period of, of decline is now going up again in some occupations. And so I think there are things about working conditions and the design of, of jobs and the design of the working environment that could still be um, improved to make sure that people are at lower risk of having uh, chronic pain caused by their work. Most employers are very reluctant to think creatively about how they can make adjustments to the workplace to accommodate people with long-term and chronic conditions. And yet the evidence is that the cost of doing so is very, very small. I have to say that if you're an employer and you've got one of your existing staff who has a new diagnosis, it's much more likely you're going to be sympathetic and make changes um, to people's working environment. If you're recruiting people um, and one of your candidates happens to have a long-term condition that involves chronic pain, it's quite unlikely you'll recruit them in the first place. And so for me, the big challenge is to get employers with staff who already have these conditions to recognise the skills and the attributes that those people bring to their business and make very tiny adjustments. Well, that's all, often that's all that's needed uh, and they're often very inexpensive. And so you know, the more we can do that, the more we can allow people to stay and work much longer. Stephen Bevan of the Work Foundation. I'll just remind you of Pain Concern's usual words of caution, that whilst we believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you and your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. Don't forget that you can download all editions of Airing Pain from painconcern.org. UK. You can also get CD copies direct from Pain Concern. 
All the contact details are at the website, including those to put a question to our panel of experts or just make a comment about these programmes via our blog, message board, email, Facebook, Twitter or pen and paper. The last words from this 2012 Societal Impact of Pain conference go to Professor Hans Kress, President of the European Federation of the International Association for the Study of Pain Chapters and representing the host nation, Pierre Fredriksen of the Danish Association of Chronic Pain Patients. Oh, I'm so grateful. It's uh, very important that such a big event as uh, the Societal Impact of Pain is here in Copenhagen. And also because uh, our society in Denmark is far behind in this uh, pain issue. So we do hope that it will increase some inspiration for the politicians uh, so they can see that it is a very big effort that we we do have problems it's not okay that so many of us is outside the labor market it's not okay that so many of us end up on benefits or sick leaves or early retirement we really do want to contribute to the society but the society uh, failed to help us we have been very proud that the European Commission for Health and Consumer Protection has taken patronage of our initiative, which shows that now we are also existing in the minds of our politicians. And we have at least achieved that not only the media, but also the politicians have recognized that chronic pain is a problem for the future development in our societies and something that has to be solved by our national healthcare systems and something that has also to be taken into consideration when we are talking about the strategic plans for 2020 for all our European countries.